Hey, this is Anthony Benning. You're listening to Fear the Sword Podcast. My name is Trevor Magnotti, and this is the Thick Jack Frames podcast, Fear the Swords NBA Draft podcast. The 2019 NBA Draft is 16 weeks away now, and your Cleveland Cavaliers are set to pick 3rd and 21st as we record today, Thursday morning. We're also two weeks from Selection Sunday, meaning we're inching closer to full draft season. But before we get into the mess that is the ridiculous team workouts and agent leaked reports of draft season, we're going to do something a little different than our standard format today. We're taking a week off from the single prospect breakdowns and instead are going to turn to one of the staples of solo podcasting, the mailbag. Nothing is a better change of pace than soliciting questions for, from you, the faithful listeners, and it's especially useful for an NBA draft podcast. That's because what we're going to end up doing today, thanks to your questions, is offering some small nuggets on a variety of prospects across the 2019 class. We obviously won't be able to cover all possibilities for the Cavs prior to the draft, but taking today's shotgun approach should help us get close. So let's get into it. These questions come from Twitter or the Fear the Sword comment section. If you have questions, these are probably the two best places to hit me up, and I'll do my best to answer on the show in the future. So let's get into it first with our Twitter questions. First question comes from Ben Pfeiffer, at Ben underscore Pfeiffer underscore on Twitter. Is Admiral Schofield worth a draft pick? Would love to hear your thoughts on that. Admiral Schofield, he's the small forward for Tennessee. Um, One of the players that I was higher on at the beginning of the college basketball season than I am on now. Thought he was a first-round level prospect early in the year, was playing really well. Um, One of the reasons that I thought that was he combines a really, really strong frame, probably the most thick jack frame of anyone in this class, with some really interesting coordination and leaping ability. And I think that that's going to be able to translate to something on the defensive end if everything goes well for him. You know, he does a good job of contesting shots. He does a good job of switching on the perimeter, is able to defend multiple positions at the college level one-on-one. And I think that that's something that sets a pretty good foundation for him. You add in some passing ability and his ability to shoot off the catch. And, you know, that could be a pretty valuable player despite him having kind of an atypical body type for the NBA. But since conference season started, we've started to see a little bit more issues with his game, particularly his defensive awareness does not seem to be very strong, and he is an upperclassman player. We would like to see him a little bit further along on the development curve on that side of the ball, and he really just doesn't have the ball skills that I think are going to be necessary for him to be able to play the three at the NBA level, and I think that that's something that is where a lot of his value could come from. So Right now, I have Schofield probably around the 35 to 40 range on my board. Um, I think that that's where he's probably going to end up being when it comes time for the draft because while he probably isn't getting the same level of love that I would give him from NBA teams right now, 
you know, he's a guy who's going to come in and he's going to crush the combine. Guys with his body type usually do. So I think I think that that's something that is going to end up getting him drafted. I think he is going to be worth it because he does have that upside as a, as a 3 and D type. But right now he's not very good as a shooter and not very good as a defender. So that kind of throws that into, into question. Um, so I think that he's a little bit of a risky pick, which is why I would put him back at the end of the 40 range. But I still think that he's worth being looked at around that range of the draft. Segwaying off of that into our second question, we have another Tennessee um, related question. This one comes from Stingy at Ite though on Twitter. Have you already talked about the Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield body transformation pictures? And he was nice enough to link those. If you haven't seen these, it's pictures of Williams and Schofield as incoming freshmen. And then also, in, uh, coming into this season, and you can see the transformation, which is the correct word, um, that these guys have gone through over their time at Tennessee. Um, both guys came in looking a little bit, um, a little bit flabby, a little uh, not really well toned in terms of muscle build, and they have both become absolutely yoked through their time at Tennessee. Um, this is something that I think we don't give college strength programs enough credit for. Um, guys, guys are going to go through some kind of body transformation when they get into college, and they're going to are physically mature as as guys end up doing throughout the or throughout their time in college usually, and they're going to end up adding significant muscle tone. I think if you did this for any number of co college football players, especially the linemen, you would see something similar to what Williams and, and Schofield um, became as they, uh, as they went through their strength program. And to be able to do that with the time constraints that these guys work with, you know, these guys aren't professional athletes. They're not spending all of their time just focused on playing basketball and getting physically mature enough to be able to play basketball full-time at the peak of their uh, potential. You know, they still have to contend. While it, it takes up a large portion of their day, they still have to contend with school. They still have to contend with other things at the college level that these guys have to do. So to be able to go, we always talk about with prospects who don't really have that upper tier strength that once they get into an NBA strength program, they're going to get so much better uh, because they're going to be able to focus full time. But the got to give credit where it's due to the Tennessee staff. They've done a great job of taking these two guys who were kind of run of the mill prospects, weren't really anything special and turning them into the special players that they've become for this team. And I think that that's something that we overlook a little bit in the in the draft prospect process is just especially for upperclassmen players, the physical development that you are able to make in college is pretty significant for a lot of these guys. And when we see upperclassmen that don't have that high end strength, that don't have that high end um, explosiveness or um, kind of peak physical condition, it is a little bit of a red flag because guys like Williams and Schofield are kind of the, while they're the upper end of what you can do as a college strength program, I think that not seeing that transfer 
over year to year as they as they get into these programs and as they're working on their bodies is a little bit of a red flag moving forward. So I'll post the link to the pictures here um, on the or when I post the podcast on Fear the Sword because they are very impressive, especially um, especially Schofield who looks like he transformed from a college offensive line prospect to a bodybuilder. And I, I think it's just a, it's a great uh, it's a great showing of what we mean when we say thick Jack frame, because Schofield definitely has one of the poster body types for that. Shifting gears away from Tennessee, um, we'll talk next about the question that Cameron Miller sends in at Cam underscore Miller twenty three. What do you think about Devon Dotson? He's really come on later in Big Twelve play. I really like Dotson. I think that he's a guy that's not really on the radar for the Cavs just because I don't think that he his play type is really going to be that helpful for this team and there are better options available. But he's a guy that isn't getting any love as a potential NBA prospect, and he really should be. I've got him at the end of my first round. I think that he's absolutely worth that spot. He's a very, very solid defensive prospect, and ends up playing across multiple positions for Kansas. I mean, he guards off ball a ton for them, not because he's being hidden as a lot of different point guards do, but because he is so useful as an off ball defender. They'll put him on the weak side defending two players away from the ball so they can send a big over to help um, the primary action. Um, They'll have him defend up to the three because he's so quick, agile, and he does have some good lower body strength, and he's able to hold up in in those situations. He's just very reactive, and I really like that from him on the defensive end. He just makes a lot of sense as a guy that is going to be able to play next to a high-volume scoring guard and is going to be able to take on a lot of the defensive load in the backcourt um, for a team. I really, I really like his quickness on the offensive end as well. He's very raw on that end overall, but I think that as he develops, he's going to kind of turn into a little bit more of a game manager type point guard, who, which still has some value in the league. And I think if his shooting continues to progress, it's really hard not to take him as like a 3 and D type point guard, um, kind of like an Avery Bradley type, although he's not nearly as long as Bradley or as tall. Um, I, th- I think that, that that's something that makes a lot of sense to me. So he's probably not going to come out this year. I think that he's a 2020 draft guy or potentially uh, later on he may just be on the Frank Mason trajectory and spend all four years at Kansas. But he's absolutely an NBA prospect when he comes out because he already has such a strong baseline as a defensive player and, uh, and as a passer that I think that any – maturity that that he bring gets as he develops at the college level is going to be very helpful for him in becoming a useful player at the NBA level too. Next question, um you talked about going with who has the better floor approach in this draft because of no quality guys. Why can't we go another way where you select based on ceiling considering Cavs don't have top players? This question is from Vignesh Velu at Vignesh B. Velu on Twitter. This is a this is a good question because you it makes sense on paper. If you have a draft that doesn't have a ton of high upside talent, 
swinging for the high upside upside talent that you do see seems like a good play. I mean, after all, in 2013, when we had another draft that's very similar to what 2019 is, the team that ended up getting the best player ended up being the Milwaukee Bucks, who swung for about as big an upside play as you could get in Giannis Antetokounmpo. Well, I think that my specific draft philosophy, that's certainly one way you can go about it, but my draft philosophy is that you want to get guys who are going to be a part of whatever system you want to run and whatever you end up wanting that team to be. Talent, you're in the talent acquisition phase, and talent, for the most part, is talent. Um, There really isn't a downside to taking a guy who doesn't have a huge ceiling but has a pretty high-quality floor because that's still going to be, at the end of the day, most NBA draft picks, you're trying to get a rotation player out of it. You're trying to get a guy who is going to be somebody that is going to be playing minutes for you whenever you're good again for three, four years. And I think that when you look at this draft, there are a lot of guys in this class that I think have a very, very good chance of being able to play in a rotation in the next few years. I think there are some upside plays, but a lot of the upside plays in this draft, I think, have a small chance of hitting that upside. I think that there's a small chance that John Morant becomes the all-star type player that he's being billed as having the potential of. I think that he does have that potential, but I don't think that he has a very strong path to getting there, and he especially doesn't on the Cavs. You compare him to a guy like Brandon Clark, who is not going to be an all-star at the NBA level, that's pretty clear, but has a pretty good path to becoming a valuable player because of his defensive potential and because of how smart he is on both ends of the floor. I think if I'm the Cavs looking at this class, and especially if they don't get the number one pick, if they're picking like third or fourth and they're going to miss out on Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett, I would much rather swing for the guys that I think are going to be able to fit what the Cavs are going to do with their roster and are going to have a good chance of becoming rotation players, taking upside a little bit out of the equation because you can fall in love with upside and you can miss a lot of the major problems that will hold somebody back from that upside. You look at Bull Bull is a great example. He's a guy that the Cavs could end up picking you know, in the four or five range. Um, And he could end up being a star for them because of his uh, off the dribble ability and because of his shooting and because he's such a good shot blocker. But you look at the weak or you look at his offensive production and you miss a little bit of the weaknesses. You miss how thin he is. You miss that he's probably not going to be a good rebounder at the NBA level. You miss that he doesn't make good rotations on the defensive end, and a lot of his blocks come from just using his length to be able to recover and compensate for the fact that he can't really move and that he struggles with identifying where plays are going on the defensive end. So if he can't do if he can't do those things, how valuable is it then that he is this off-the-dribble shooter? What utility does that have, and how 
is he going to be able to use that to his advantage if he can't do these basic things? That's kind of the way that I look at a lot of the guys at the top of this class and why I stick to the guys that I, I like so much. I don't think that Cam Reddish is a good play for the Cavs. I do think that Jared Culver is. I don't think that John Morant is a good play for the Cavs. I do think that Kobe White is. And it's because these guys, the latter two, they have traits that I think are going to be easily transferable. Whereas the other guys I think are going to struggle right away and there's going to be a big learning curve for them to be able to get there. I think that they can get there if they get a good development situation, but we still don't know what this Cavs team is going to do development-wise. We don't know what that's going to look like with this new front office. And I think that that's something to keep in mind. So that's kind of why I have preached the go-for-the-floor approach to the 2019 draft. I think that if you're missing out on Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett, who are, I think, the true all-star upside guys in this class, you want to find rotation players and trying to find stars even though the team is bad, with this class, it's just not going to be a good situation trying to swing for the fences. Your chances of actually getting good good players out of the draft are less if you take the guys who have that small chance upside versus the guys who have a chance or who don't have that upside but have a good chance of becoming players that are going to be on your roster in 2022. Next question is probably my favorite of this group. In general, do you think folks are being overly pessimistic about prospects who have suffered season derailing injuries? This one comes from Thomas Sinkara at Bin Thrifty on Twitter, one of my pals from NBA Draft Twitter. This is a good question because everybody seems to have different ways to gauge um, injuries. Injuries are obviously bad. Um, we we hate to see when guys go down in the NBA. We hate to see when guys suffer injuries in college because it does create uncertainty. You know, there are, or we don't know specifically what happened to a player when they go down. Um, it's very difficult to tell on video, even with all the replays that we can show now, exactly what the injury is that the player has su suffered. And we also don't really have a good grasp of how that injury is going to be treated and how a player is going to recover from that injury. So we have this tendency where we look at players getting injury uh, injuries and we automatically shift them down the board because, you know, it creates a little bit of uncertainty. Are they going to be able to get back from this injury? Are they going to look the same? Well, I think that we do this a little bit too much and we've had a perfect test case in this draft class to, um, for this because I think, or because we've had probably 12, 13 guys in the draft class who have had not insignificant injuries, not necessarily all of them have been major catastrophic season ending things, but, but they're injuries that have a negative effect on the player's play. Um, so like Kevin Porter Jr., who had quad tendonitis, and while he didn't miss the entire season or anything, missed significant time and ended up, you know, struggling a little bit when he came, when he came back. He had some other stuff going on there as well, but um, really hasn't looked the same as he did early in, early in the season when he came back from the injury. Um, I think overall we need to have a better gauge of 
kind of the realistic expectations of what a player is going to be able to functionally get back to and also injury risk. We look at acute injuries a lot, which are injuries that are suffered kind of in the moment, don't really have like an underlying cause other than a specific movement or a specific action that causes the injury. Um, we look at those and we immediately think that they are going to be, you know, injury prone, quote unquote. Um, Anthony Davis is a guy that I think of always when when I talk about this because he missed a lot of time early in his career with kind of some random acute injuries that didn't really follow a specific pattern. You know, he had a hand injury and then he had a knee uh, knee injury um, and then he had a shoulder issue. These were things that kind of kept him out of play repeatedly, but everybody kind of labeled him as injury prone when that wasn't really the case. He had just suffered a couple of injuries back to back to back to back. And while, you know, he's had issues this season, he's been healthy for a few, uh, for a few years here now, but prior to this year. And um, I think that we are way too prone to throwing that label out. So I think that we need to kind of get a realistic understanding of what is actually a risk for future injury and what isn't. So, for example, we can go through some big-name guys in this class who have suffered injuries. Darius Garland has a meniscus tear. That's not something that is going to make somebody injury-prone or prone to uh, future issues more often than not. Guys get meniscus cleanouts and guys get meniscus repairs all the time in the NBA, and they're able to come back with with pretty good um, pretty good outcomes. They're able to reach their pre-injury play level pretty easily. Jonte Porter, ACL tear. This one's the big scary one. You know, the player misses a year. The player um, doesn't have the stability that they once had. Um, you know, we've seen guys back in the old day, Bernard King tears his ACL and he's never the same player. Um, but I think that ACLs kind of have the, have become a little bit of a misnomer where I think that because it's such a long time out of the game, we automatically think that every player is going to come back and immediately be Derrick Rose, where they're going to have a ton of problems and that they're going to never become the same level of athlete that they once were, and they're going to have issues forever. But we're seeing more and more that that's, that's not the case for everybody. Dennis Smith and has an ACL tear in high school. Look at how athletic he looks. Um, Harry Giles is actually looking functional now that he's had time to heal, and he's had multiple AC ACL surgeries. Um, looking at guys even from 5, 10 years ago, David West tears his ACL, and he's able to continue playing as he comes back. You do kind of have to shift your game a little bit, but it's not a career derailing or career ending injury like it once was. So I look at Jonte Porter, especially the fact that he doesn't use his athleticism a lot at, to be able to do what he, he is good at. And I think that he's going to be a guy that is going to continue to be on the trajectory that we had for him before the injury when he comes back from his ACL tear. Now that's not to say that there's that every injury is, kind of a one-off thing that we don't have to worry about. I look at guys like Dean Wade and Bull Bull in particular um, discussing this. 
those are guys that I would still kind of have a little bit of hesitancy about in terms of injury. You know, foot fractures are one of the trickier things that you have to deal with in terms of injuries at or in basketball, especially because these guys are so tall. They have they're carrying a lot of weight on their feet and they're putting a lot of stress through their feet just by virtue of what they have to do on the court. So when you see a guy have a stress fracture or you see a guy have recurrent foot injuries in the case of Wade, it is a little bit scary because we do see these guys continue to have issues. Joel Embiid continued to have issues after his first foot fracture. Um, Ben Simmons had to go back and have another, uh, another fracture fixation after his after his first injury um brooke lopez had to have three or four surgeries on his foot so there are guys or so these that is a long-term concern injury but i think that realistically a lot of the other ones that we see in this class are not really big problems um moving forward next one is from uh, this guy has just a Canadian flag as his display name. He's at Cam Bays M on Twitter. Bowl Bowl selection prediction. Um, he's a guy that is probably the biggest outlier in the entire class because of the injury, because of his weird skill set, and because of his weird frame. Um, I think that if I'm, and I obviously don't have any intel here, but if I'm looking at things correctly, I think that he's probably going to be a guy that goes in the back half of the top 10. I think that there are teams that are going to fall in love with him. And if they get in the right spot with the right order breakdown, I think that there is a scenario where he can go second or third. But I think that teams are going to be scared off by the foot injury, especially if he holds out from some of the workouts in the pre-draft process. Um, as agent agents will often do with guys who are coming back from injury. I think that more, more likely than not, he's going to be a guy who is kind of going in the Lowry marketing range where he's not consider, he's considered kind of at the same level as a lot of the top level prospects, but there's a little bit of hesitancy towards drafting him. One centers are probably the least valuable position on the floor. Um, over over replacement level so there's not really much value in drafting uh, a center in the top five especially in this in this class a lot of teams don't need centers also um and also i think that teams are going to acknowledge that he's going to take a lot of development to become whatever it is that he's going to end up becoming at his ceiling so i think it's going to be a particularly adventurous team that is picking in the in the back half of the top 10 that's going to end up grabbing him and kind of making a long-term play out of him. I look at the Atlanta Hawks who are probably going to have like the eighth or ninth pick in the draft in addition to probably the fourth or fifth. And I think that they are a spot where I would see him going maybe with that eighth pick because they're going to get another, another chance at a rotation player and they're going to end or then be able to kind of shelve bowl for whatever time he needs to get healthy whatever times he needs to physically mature and they're going to be able to bring him along slowly in a way that other teams aren't going to be able to all right so our last question comes from the fear the sword comment section it's from user cousin underscore drew how do you value deandre hunter i've basically seen him everywhere from 4 to 15 which is odd since he should be one of the surest bets in the class i 
value him as kind of a back end of the top 10 um, early teens type guy. I think that he on paper fits the mold of a guy who's going to be very valuable. I've written that before that he is a guy who is probably going to be able to float between the three and the four is going to be able to be a decent defender and has some offensive upside, which we've seen over the last couple of weeks from his scoring ability at, uh, for Virginia. But I think that you look at his body type and you get an impression of what he is and what he actually is on the court when you watch him. Those are two different things. I think that Hunter isn't necessarily the top tier defensive prospect that he kind of gets billed as by some people. I think that he's going to struggle with bigger guys and he's going to struggle playing a full as a full-time four at the NBA level because he doesn't really have great upper body strength and he um, doesn't have really superior quickness. He kind of has average quickness for a guy his size. So I think that that isn't really going to be a, I think that that really isn't going to be as good as a lot of different people think when they, when they watch him. So I would rate him probably around 12th or 13th in this class. I think that he's on par with Clark and Grant Williams as kind of that tier of forwards who are going to probably be rotation players in the league, but may not have that top tier upside and don't really do a lot of the flashy stuff that makes you worthy of a top 10 pick. Um, I, I just think that if you are taking, thinking about taking him in the four five, six range, you're going to be disappointed by what you get and teams aren't going to play him in a way that's going to be conducive to what his skill set actually is. If they're trying to develop him into a potential star prospect, that's why I get a little bit hesitant. If the Cavs are picking like fifth and they take Deandre Hunter, I'm hesitant to think that he's actually going to become what they want him to become with that pick because they're going to expect him to do more than he's probably capable of. So that's why I think you're seeing him lower in the class that for most people as, as opposed to seeing him in the four, five, six range is because you really have to have a team that takes him with realistic expectations for him to be able to succeed. So thanks to everybody for the questions. We're going to take a short break here and we'll come back with our games of the week for the final week of regular season college basketball. Three, two, one. All right, so let's talk about the final games of the week for the regular season. Three really good games that are going to wrap up the college basketball regular season through this week. Um that are going to be pretty pretty important matchups for us as well because they are going to match up really good draft prospects against each other or are going to give us some really good test cases for some other guys. Um, our first matchup is going to be tonight, Monday night, on ESPN at 9 o'clock. Um, we're going to get some Big 12 action as Texas takes on Texas Tech. For Texas, you're going to have Jackson Hayes, who's probably a top 10 prospect in the class, and Kerwin Roach, who is a second-round level player. They're going to be taking on Texas Tech, who has obviously Jared Culver, another top-10 prospect, as well as Tarek Owens, who is kind of like a G League undrafted type guy. 
because he's a little bit older. That matchup between Hayes and Tarek Owens is going to be really interesting because in their first game, Owens really gave Hayes a lot of trouble on the glass and he used his strength and length to really be able to bother Hayes. Now, Hayes isn't physically mature yet. He's a guy who is kind of a late bloomer in terms of his height and in terms of his physical development, and I think is going to be um, a guy who's a little bit of a work in progress early in his career. But I think seeing him against a guy who is basically an NBA player in terms of Owens, where Owens is 23, he has been around for a while, and he is probably an NBA-level rim protector. I think seeing him have to try to finish against Owens and try to keep Owens off the glass is going to be something that's going to be very interesting in this game. I also want to see how Culver finishes against Hayes at the rim. Um, we're going to get some good matchups there. Um, obviously, when you can get two top 10 picks going at each other on one end, that's going to be very important information, seeing how Culver finishes against Hayes, seeing if Hayes can keep up with Culver if he gets him on a switch. Those are all going to be really important things in this matchup. So I really like this game. This is going to be a really important game to see two top 10 level players be able to face off with each other. Second game is going to be Tuesday on SEC Network. This one is again at 9, 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, we've talked about both these teams before, but they haven't played each other yet this season. It's Mississippi State at Tennessee. Um, the matchup here is going to be Ark Holman, who is kind of a traditional style NBA big who has some passing ability and is a pretty strong shot blocker and rebounder facing off with Grant Williams. Um, I think that Williams is going to be a good test for whether Holman can defend kind of like a playmaking style big and is going to be able to track him on the perimeter. I also think that we're going to get a good chance to see whether Williams is going to be able to finish against Holman. Um, he has been able to finish against most of the NBA-level bigs that he's faced this year, but Holman is on the upper end of that group in terms of shot blocking, so this this will be interesting. I also want to see if uh, Quindary Weatherspoon, who I have as kind of a, a fringe second-round prospect, if he can do a good job of stopping Admiral Schofield, that'll be an interesting battle as well. So not as much to take away from this game as the other two big games that we have this week, but I still do really want to see how Williams and Schofield play against the guys at Mississippi State. And finally, the probably the most important game, it is Duke-UNC round two. That's going to be on Saturday at ESPN at 6 p.m. Um, hopefully we get Zion Williamson back by that point, um, but, but we'll have to see whether, whether he plays in this game. If he does, that matchup with... Uh, with Cam Johnson and Nasir Little that I talked about last time that these two teams played. I think that that's going to be really important. It was really disappointing that we didn't get to see a lot of Nasir Little in that game. He was obviously coming back from injury as well. Um, I want to see how he does um, having to defend Jack White in the corners, how he does if, in a potential matchup with Williamson how he does on switches against Barrett and Reddish. I think that that's all going to be important information for how he's able to defend at an NBA level. Um, on the flip side, Cam Johnson really bothered Cam Reddish and, and RJ Barrett when he was switched on to them. Um, in the last game and I really want to see if they can have a little bit more of an efficient time out this time. Um, I'd like to see in particular Barrett 
going hard at the rim, um, really getting some good quality looks in the paint against UNC's defense. I don't think that that's something that he was really comfortable with in round one. I think that this time could be a little bit different. So that's going to be important as well. And obviously everybody's going to be tuned into this game. It's it's going to be a really good, really good matchup. And hopefully we get a little bit better game than we did last time when it was a 20-point blowout basically from the jump. Um, so that'll wrap up our show t- for today. Thank you to all of you who sent in questions for the mailbag. We'll probably do a couple more of these as we get closer to the draft. So there will definitely be more opportunities to get your questions answered on the pod. Again, you can send those questions to me on Twitter at Illegal Screens. Um, you can send them to me in the Fear the Sword comments. Um, I do a good job of, of sifting through and looking for them. So um, if you see me in there commenting, um, definitely hit me up there um you can also send us an email at fear the sword podcast at gmail.com um if you like the podcast you can find it on fear the sword itunes stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and keep an eye out for our other podcasts on the network best way to support us again is to subscribe and leave a review which helps more people find the podcast we'll be back next monday to preview conference championship tournament week um and we're going to be breaking down another prospect as well probably we'll do a top 10 guy um, after we've kind of hit some guys that could go either way for for the Cavs and are probably more second pick options um, so we'll try to hit one of the bigger guys in this one we're also planning on having a couple guests as we get into the thick of draft season so that should be exciting as well um, but for now we'll just focus on our last week of regular college basketball regular season action um, so stick with us and we'll see you next Monday Thank, stay thick and stay jacked